Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, foreign influence in Canada. Former ambassador to China, David Mulroney, has some important ideas on how to counter it. The fight against Quebec's Bill 21. A new group is launched to get all Canadians involved in this debate. Also, a lot of talk in this election about pharmacare. But what would that mean in practice? Plus, a conversation with comedian and motivational speaker, Jackie Fabulous. An important new contribution in the conversation around foreign interference and how Canada needs to respond and how Canada needs to even recognize the threat in the first place. New commentary from the McDonald Laurier Institute called Shining a Brighter Light on Foreign Influence in Canada and the blind spot that Canada has when it comes to this. The author of this piece is a veteran. Uh, of Canada's uh, foreign policy, including obviously some some time as ambassador to China. Uh, David Mulroney joins us uh, on the line here today to talk about uh, his new piece, which you can read, by the way, at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Mr. Mulroney, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Rob. Uh, so what what is the conversation you think the Canadians need to have around this issue of foreign influence? I think they need to be reminded, made aware of the fact that a lot of countries are interested, for one reason or another, in in influencing and even interfering in Canadian life. We're a wealthy country, we're a stable country, we're influential, we're an ally of the United States. All of those things make us a target, as does the fact that we're home to a lot of different, you know, ethnic diaspora communities. I point in my paper to China in particular, because that's the country I know best, and it's the one, frankly, Rob, because of their money, their growing power, their assertiveness, that we need to worry about most. And what I'm saying basically is, if you as a Canadian are working for a foreign government or an entity that is controlled by a foreign government, you simply need to be transparent about it. You need to make sure that Canadians are aware of that. I go one step further, though, for people who are former senior officials, ministers, uh, deputy ministers, people who headed agencies, MPs, senators. And there I'm saying that not just it's not just about lobbying or influencing. If you do any work for a foreign entity after you leave your uh, your official government work for a long period of time, you need to disclose that. If you're trading on the experience, the contacts, the information you got while in the service of Canada and, and providing that to a foreign government, you need to be transparent. For ministers and the prime minister, I'd say it's lifetime. And for other senior officials, I'd say there's a 15-year uh, requirement for that level of transparency. I mean, there were those who, who and, and maybe they have um, a different agenda behind it, but there were those who would, would downplay all of this or, or suggest that it's alarmist to warn about this kind of interference in Canadian affairs. But what, what's your assessment of the threat? And that, you know, that's always going to happen. And it's a, it's a difficult and controversial subject to raise. But let me just give you my thinking on China in particular. So, first of all, we have China's own doctrine. China's doctrine is that it 
there's a branch of the, 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 the Communist Party that is active internationally to influence um, uh, foreign opinion about China, and very often that influence is done not through regular you know, diplomatic channels, not a you know, get-to-know-China day, but through clandestine means, where they use the diaspora community, they might use student groups, or they might use influential Canadians to do that. We also have to look at experience elsewhere. Australia and New Zealand are worrying about this right now, as is the United States. Mm-hmm. And we'd be foolish not to think about what's happening in countries that are a lot like Canada. And finally, our own uh, security officials, the folks in CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, have been warning us about this for over a decade. So I think it would be irresponsible not to think that Canada is uh, in some way vulnerable to this. And it's interesting, you mentioned Australia, and part of what you write about in this is to to kind of model off what Australia has done, which is to create a a registry of sorts when it comes to foreign agents. What, What would that look like? Well, what the Australians have done, as you mentioned, is is very, very interesting. And so they're saying, um, in addition to, you know, we, we, we think about lobbying and, and a lobbying registry, they're saying uh, that um, and they have established uh, a, a scheme, they call it a foreign influence transparency scheme, where, just as we've said, if you are acting on behalf of a, a foreign government, uh, you have to be transparent, You have to, you, your name goes on a registry and it says specifically the government you're working for. It also goes on to say, and I think this is very important, if you're communicating on behalf of a foreign government, uh, you have to be clear about that. And let's think about what that means. I mean, you could be a Canadian and and decide, you know, for whatever reason that you agree entirely with China's position on Hong Kong or the South China Sea and write an op-ed about that. That's your, you know, you're you're free to do that. Mm -hmm. You're not free to do that if you're doing it, you know, for pay, or for some other inducement on behalf of the Chinese government. So if you're a former politician speaking out about China on China's behalf, you need to be transparent. If you're a student group bullying other students on behalf of China, you need to be transparent about that. The Australian um, new scheme has some teeth. There are you know, criminal sanctions involved with not being transparent. And they also use their intelligence services to help them determine whether an entity is or is not uh, influenced by uh, by a foreign government. So I think these are all things that are worth uh, applying in Canada. And let's remember that what Australia is saying is this isn't about prohibiting things necessarily. It's about requiring a higher level of transparency. The, the reason I'm particularly concerned about senior officials is if we look at Ottawa as, as a place, it's kind of like the Hotel California. People check out, but they never leave. Mm-hmm. You have retired officials who are in Ottawa mixing with current officials, showing up on the talk shows. They're, they're treated with respect. Their, their views carry weight. That's, that's fine. But Canadians need to know if those views are in some way shaped by a foreign government. It, it, what's really interesting about the Australian legislation is uh, in the weeks before it came into effect, a number of very senior Australians, who people who'd held senior, you know, cabinet-level jobs in Canberra or at the level of, of the states, um, suddenly decided on their own that they were, quote-unquote, retiring from the boards of Chinese corporations that had hired them. One person said, you know, I, I was making a great deal of money every month, but I was never asked to do anything. So I think I'm going to mm-hmm. step down now. Well, it may have been a coincidence that he did this just in advance of the legislation, but I think it shows that, you know, there's something there. There's something we need to be alert to. What about a a situation where you have a a corporation uh, 
that may be beholden to a, a foreign government. And uh, there are Canadians who are employed by that company, advancing the cause of that company, which might also in turn advance the interest of, of the government that that company is answerable to. I mean, there's a high-profile example in Canada with a certain telecommunications uh, giant. How would that factor in here? So the Australian legislation deals with that explicitly. And again, I think it's something we could apply in Canada. If you're an employee, you don't have to register because it, it's transparent. If, if I'm you know, the communications director for ABC Corporation of another country uh, and I'm you know, identified on a, on a TV show or a radio show as that, that that's you know, sufficient. Canadians can understand uh, why that person is saying what he or she is. Uh, saying, but if I'm doing this um, in in a way that is somewhat covert, and it sounds like it's my opinions, particularly my opinions as a senior official, then I think we you know we need a higher level of transparency, and that's what this is designed to get at. Uh, so for those then who that would be on this registry, I mean that that would preclude them from from sitting on certain boards or or from privy council membership. What would being on that list entail then, in your view? So the first thing that happens is um, it. It, it sort of creates a, a place where Canadians can go, and folks in Ottawa can go to, you know, to inform themselves, to understand who's acting, who's currently acting for foreign governments. It, it also, the, the process also requires, I, I think, senior officials to go through a kind of a, a thought process. And it says, you're free to do this, but if you choose to do this, you can't also be a, you know, a trusted insider in the government of Canada. And you're not going to be in a position where we, you know, we share uh, classified information with you. The one thing I've also suggested is you must, um, you know, if you are appointed to a federal government board or agency or commission, uh, you must, you know, cease uh, being a foreign agent. You're precluded from doing that. So it sends a message to the foreign government that the people they hire are, are by definition, a step away from their old life. But it's also an important message for those folks themselves to say, there, there, there's a quid pro quo here. You can't be a privileged you know, advisor to Her Majesty's government and someone who's trying to persuade and shape that government's policy on behalf of a foreign government. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, and, and for you personally, I mean, look, obviously you, you bring a lot of expertise to this. 32 years in the Foreign Service, three years as Canada's ambassador to China. I think it's an important voice in helping Canadians understand it. As, as we all learned a few months ago, there was some unease perhaps in official circles in, in Ottawa with, with you in particular, people in your situation commenting publicly on, on matters pertaining to China. Do, do you feel, though, that it is important that you lend your expertise to, to this issue and helping Canadians understand this issue? Yeah, I retired in, in 2012. And when I retired, you know, I, I thought things through fairly carefully. And, you know, I, for the first time, I was stepping up from my government life where I was, you know, what I said was obviously um, somewhat restricted and controlled. I wasn't an elected official. I was, you know, a, a public servant. Yeah. So I had to be very careful about my views and my opinions. And I thought, now I am free to to offer some views to Canadians about, you know, what happens in government, what it's like to be an ambassador to China, what, how decisions are made. And for that reason, I didn't go to work for a company that might have its own reasons for wanting me not to, to speak yeah. frankly. I thought, there's a price to this, but I'm willing to pay the, pay the price because I would like, I, I think there's a, a place for former public servants and former officials to speak about, you know, what's happening to offer their views, but in ways that are, are clearly personal and based on their experience and not uh, linked to, you know, to some other 
uh, entity that, that might have its own interests. So we don't have a lot of think tanks in Canada. I'm really happy that um, Madame uh, Laurier has uh, published his piece for me. Uh, it's, it's a little bit lonely out there for them. There, there aren't that mm-hmm. many others. And as a result, I, I think what suffers is, you know, Canadians' understanding of how government works. Because if people go out of government and then go into uh, into industry, that's fine. But you're not really going to get that that, that kind of um, uh, unbiased, I guess, or objective assessment of, of what's going on. And I think we, we need to have more voices and, and we need, you know, a, a broader chorus of people uh, speaking about these things, especially as we get into situations like the one we're in with China that are so difficult but so consequential for our economic future, for our security, for our well-being. Indeed. Well said. Much more, as uh, mentioned, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. This paper shining a brighter light on foreign influence in Canada. David Mulrooney, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Good to be with you. Thank you. All the best. Uh, David Mulrooney is a distinguished fellow at the Hmong School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, as mentioned, served as ambassador to China from 2009 to 2012, over 30 years uh, working with the Canadian Foreign Service. Uh, so his piece, Shining a Brighter Light on Foreign Influence in Canada, it's up at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, so as he says, Australia has done this. And it, it makes a lot of sense, I think, for Canada to look at, at doing so as well. As he says, you can't be both a distinguished advisor to Her Majesty's Canadian government and someone who is paid to influence that government on behalf of a foreign principal. So we need to signal to foreign governments that any former Canadian official... They hire has, by definition, stepped away from his or her role as a privileged advisor to governments in Canada. All right, so as mentioned last night was the French language leaders debate, which which often is the case that, that there is a focus on Quebec issues. So it makes sense that Bill 21, this this ostensibly secularism law in Quebec would be up for discussion because a it is a Quebec issue. But more importantly, uh, where are the federal leaders on this? Freedom of religion is not just a provincial issue. So it's pretty reasonable, I think, that we would be looking for some federal leadership on this. Uh, now, here's what the incumbent, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, said today about Bill 21. Uh, we uh, are recognizing that Quebecers are defending their rights through the Charter the way uh, the Charter is meant to be done. Citizens can take uh, a government to court and and challenge a particular law. That conversation is happening right now. Uh, but as I've said, we're going to keep monitoring this process. Uh, and uh, if there is a, a moment where we feel that the federal government uh, should uh, engage in this discussion formally, we will do that. On a personal side and as a government, Canadians and Quebecers know full well that I will always defend people's rights, whether it's minorities, whether it's Francophone minorities outside of Quebec, uh, whether it's women's rights, uh, whether it's LGBT communities. The position of the federal government is always to be unequivocally there to defend people who need uh, need their rights defended, and that's what we will continue to do. And again, not to single out Mr. Trudeau here, because I think some of the other federal leaders have been weak on this too, but... You know, to let other people fight it out in court, you're kind of abdicating the responsibility. Why isn't the federal government getting involved here? So how concerned should other Canadians be about what's happening in Quebec? Is this a national issue? Well, joining us on the line uh, to talk more about this is Nita Kang, who's campaign coordinator with a new group, Canadians United Against Bill 21, CanadiansUnited.ca. Nita, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate you bringing attention to this issue. It's a very 
important issue, not just for Quebecers, but for all Canadians. Yeah, explain in your view why Canadians outside of Quebec should be concerned about this. So there's a number of reasons why this is a Canadian issue. Um, One of them being that this bill, Bill 21, is a direct violation of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And it sets a dangerous precedent. If we accept this in Quebec, what next? Uh, Another province may want to enact a similar type of bill. And, And where does it end? So uh, it, it could also be not just freedom of religion. It could be another charter right that a province decides to to uh, to violate as well. And uh, this bill is is simply un-Canadian. You you have people in Quebec right now who may want to be a police officer or a school teacher, and if they identify with a certain faith and and wear an article of faith, they can't qualify for those jobs now and if they're in those jobs now they'll be passed up for a promotion because they wear an article of faith and and that is un-canadian and not in line with canadian values this bill will impact how we treat each other as canadians but also how people outside of canada see us as canadians as well uh, so as I mentioned at the outset, it, it did come up for discussion last night in, in the leaders' debate. What, what, what were your thoughts on what you heard from the various leaders last night on this? So the goal of our campaign, Canadians United Against Bill 21, is to shift the conversation on this issue. What we're hearing right now from the federal leaders, with the exception of the Bloc and the People's Party, is that they oppose this bill. What we're not hearing is what are they going to do about it? Will they fight this bill? So we'd like to shift the conversation to uh, to seeing all of the federal leaders commit to fighting this bill. And I know Mr. Trudeau has, has said that he wants to see this move through the courts, but really we'd like to see him and the other leaders take a stronger stand and say, we will commit to fighting this bill now, and we will use the means available to us to fight this bill. What do you make of the arguments in favor of this bill that that you know that that there needs to be secularism in this country or or in Quebec that there needs to be a separation between church and state do, do, do any of those arguments hold any water for you So in our view this bill is it's simply religious discrimination masked as secularism and really the argument isn't there uh, for imposing this type of discrimination on minority communities in Quebec. It's, uh, it's a complete violation of the charter rights, and it's simply uh, creating a level of inequality that we shouldn't accept anywhere in Canada. Now, the fact that the uh, Quebec government has invoked the notwithstanding clause, uh, I suppose, makes it uh, more difficult to challenge this in court. I think it would pretty clearly be a violation of religious freedoms. But, but what avenues still exist, in your view, in fighting this? Is this a, is this a political fight and trying to convince the government to back down? Is there a legal fight to, to be won here? So there is a political fight and there is a legal fight here. And we'd like to see the next government commit to using all the tools they have available to them to to fight this bill. And um, saying that they're going to wait to see how it moves through the courts is simply not good enough because 
A, we don't know how long it's going to take to move through the courts, and B, in the meantime, there are some folks in Quebec that are being forced to give up their their dreams of serving the public in, in various roles, and some of them are even leaving and relocating and moving out of Quebec, and uh, that's not acceptable. We shouldn't be accepting that. We'd like to see the government to use whatever tools they have available and uh, use the full, full force of the law to, to fight this regressive legislation yeah it was interesting yesterday uh this incident involving jagmeet singh where you know uh, and someone who I, I, it appears was a supporter of his party but come up to him and, and tell him that he should remove his turban you know i mean he's an interesting example of a politician who could conceivably be the prime minister of canada yet there, there are a number of jobs now in quebec that he would be ineligible for simply because he wears a turban i mean what, what does it tell us about I mean, is it, it, does it tell us something about attitudes in that province? Is it fair to, to frame it that way? So, first off, I'd like to say that Mr. Singh did handle that situation with uh, composure, and, and uh, he, was, he handled it with grace, and he handled it as a true Canadian, mm-hmm. in my view. And what it tells us is that we still have a lot of work to do in Canada um, I'd say not just in Quebec, but all across Canada when it comes to breaking down barriers and, uh, and creating a, a level of tolerance that, uh, where we don't see this kind of, uh, behavior happen anywhere, uh, in Canada. It shouldn't, it shouldn't happen in Quebec. It shouldn't happen anywhere in Canada. Indeed. Uh, so also the website, CanadiansUnited.ca, there's, there's a pledge available that you're asking Canadians yeah. to sign. Tell us about that. So our project launched recently, and the goal of our project, as I said before, is to to shift the conversation about this issue. And how we plan to do that is uh, a couple ways. First, we're encouraging the public to go online to our website, CanadiansUnited.ca, to sign on to our pledge. And what our pledge says is that you will... Uh, pledge to defend the freedom of religion in Canada as prescribed by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and also that you'll pledge to oppose Bill 21. So we're asking the public to sign on to this pledge. And as we all know, there's strength in numbers. And if we can come together and press our federal leaders to do something about this, hopefully we'll We'll see action sooner than later. The second thing that we're doing is we've reached out to federal candidates across the country. We sent an email out to over 1,100 federal candidates asking them to sign on to this pledge. So if voters want to know where their local candidate stands on the issue, uh, we've asked them to sign on to this pledge, and any candidates that do sign on will be publishing uh, their information on our website, and voters can check our website, CanadiansUnited.ca, to see who has signed on. We're in the process of collecting the data now. We're receiving emails back from federal candidates, and that information will be posted shortly on our site. I think it's important to know before you go to the ballot box if your uh, local candidate is going to stand up for your charter rights and if they're prepared to fight for um, and defends freedom of religion once they do come into office. I think it's important to know that when you go to the ballot box and to make an informed decision. Again, CanadiansUnited.ca is the website, uh, on Twitter and Facebook as well. Nita, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you so much for your time.
health care is a provincial responsibility, but there has been a lot of talk about health care issues in the election campaign. I mean, the question of having dental care uh, fall under universal health care, that's come up in the election. But there's also been a lot of talk about pharmacare. Uh, and some of the parties have been promising to implement some kind of a system of pharmacare. Now, what does that entail? Certainly what we have right now is, is kind of a hybrid system where there is this government assistance available for low-income Canadians. But for the most part, people are, are responsible for their own prescriptions or they have private coverage, maybe coverage through their employer that covers prescriptions. But then there are people that, that still do fall through that gap. So do we need some kind of a system in place to help those who do fall through the gap? How do we do that? Do we take a targeted approach? Do we have some kind of a universal all-in pharmacare program? Um, what have other jurisdictions done? So the question of what's needed, what works best, what our goals are in terms of outcomes, what kind of a cost we're looking at, there, there are a lot of questions around this. So to kind of explore what pharmacare might mean and various options for implementing it, I want to bring into the conversation here today, Rosalie Wanch is a policy analyst at the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhowe.org, and has done a lot of research on this particular question. Rosalie, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. This is a super important issue, so I'm happy to I'm happy to talk to talk about it yeah. and inform Canadians about what this might actually mean. Right, and I think that's important to do. Talk about then why, why you believe it is is an important issue. Well, really, somewhere between ten to twenty percent of Canadians currently don't have any coverage, either public or private, and so you know that is a gap to be addressed not taking prescription medication or not having access to it will, you know, can affect people's quality of life and will can actually lead to greater health care costs down the road if their condition worsens and they actually end up in hospital. Mm-hmm. So there's both government cost reasons and, you know, human welfare quality of life reasons that really pharma we should address that gap and pharmacare is important. But really I think that it's important to also remember that it really is 10 to 20% of the population and public currently public coverage covers somewhere between 26 to 36% of people but the majority of Canadians actually do already have quite comprehensive coverage through private insurance either individually purchased or through their employer right so that that gap then you figure is about 10 to 20% yeah depending on the source okay. used it's it's somewhere in that range uh, so in that sense, then, if we, we if we look at those for whom things are more or less working right now, do, do we need a system that replaces everything, or do we need a system that, that really is more about targeting that gap? Well, I think that for the Canadians that currently have coverage, there there's less need there. Right. Generally, private insurance will actually cover a larger range of products than is covered under a public formulary or sorry, the list of drugs covered by public insurance. And so really for a majority of Canadians, at least six six in 10, there isn't really a large need here. Um, really, there's an acute need in some areas where, say, there's only 1% of households spend more than 9% of their income on medications. And so there there is unmet need, but I think that we shouldn't go to a fully universally publicly funded system because that would be 
really getting rid of something that's working quite well for the majority of Canadians. And also, it would likely be quite expensive because, as it stands, public dollars cover actually less than half of prescription drug spending in the country. So really the question that I think we should ask Canadians is, do you, are you interested in covering the, you know, about 17 to $18 billion annually that is currently covered by private insurance or out of pocket? Right. Do, do we have any estimates then in terms of if we were to go to a fully universal pharmacare coverage plan, what, what kind of a cost would we be looking at then, those, those higher-end costs? Well, really, um, just going from the most recent numbers, if the government were to take over all private expenditure on prescription drugs, that would be about $18 billion. Wow. Likely more. Um, if we were, however, to expand or create new public programs that fill the gaps, so just you know, offer those programs to people that currently don't have coverage or you know, don't have sufficient coverage, then we'd be looking at somewhere between two and a half to five billion dollars. So less than a third of the price, and we can accomplish the goal. Yeah, that's that's quite a gap. And and you spoke about this earlier, where you got the visible costs, which that would represent, but the the potential for in the long term, uh, you know, efficiencies in the healthcare system, where we have costs we're dealing with right now as a result of people who aren't taking uh, their their prescription medication, the health problems that that can lead to. Exactly. And so it's hard to say uh, without doing, you know, a pretty in-depth research study on specifically that question, what the future health savings would be. But basically hospitals are the currently covered under public coverage, and they're also the most expensive place to treat somebody. Mm-hmm. So really, I think that the goal should m- remain ensuring that all Canadians have access to comprehensive prescription drug coverage that they can afford. But that doesn't mean that we all have to have the exact same insurance. Right. Is it something that Ottawa needs to, to take the lead on? I mean, provinces could do this on their own if they wanted. I believe Quebec has, has a plan in place. So it, how, how does this need to be administered? Well, really, it's kind of complicated, but there are good reasons for keeping pharmacare in the hands of provinces. And so the federal government should be commended on sort of taking the lead because you know, that's how we'll get comprehensive coverage all the way across the country. But really, the provinces should be in control of how exactly that goes forward and in what form, simply because there's a few reasons. One is that the provinces control, have constitutional jurisdiction, actually, on health care. So the federal government may not actually even legally be able to take over pharmacare. And as you say, there are Quebec already has universal mandatory insurance coverage, as well other provinces such as BC and Alberta have programs that are accessible to anyone in their population. So we actually aren't as far behind on this as some people might be thinking. But really, since those systems already exist and are working for those populations, if the federal government were to come in and replace that with something, then they first are opening themselves up to a lot of infighting and negotiating with the provinces, yeah. potentially <laughs> constitutional challenges, and also we're disrupting a system that is actually working quite well for most people. But I suppose if the federal government were to take an approach to say, look, we think this should be a priority, uh, that, that if provinces are prepared to go down this path, that, that will help cover some of those costs, that, that might move things along quite quickly, I suspect. Yeah, really, I think them just putting the challenge out there isn't going to be enough 
for the provinces to, you know, leap to achieving the goal of universal pharmacare. And so, you know, offering to cover some of that incremental funding would be quite a good step towards achieving that, especially because most provinces are working with strained health budgets to begin with. So they're, they're having trouble managing the costs of what they cover already, let alone having the funding to expand that coverage to other areas and more people. All right. Well, more at uh, cdhound.org, including your study from June on filling the gaps, a prescription for universal pharma care. Rosalie, appreciate your input on this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thanks for having me. All right. All the best. Rosalie Wanch is a policy analyst at the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhound.org, written extensively on this issue. So one thing's down here on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, on a more lighter note, looking forward to this conversation. Uh, fresh off her run on America's Got Talent, got her all the way to the semifinals. Jackie Fabulous is here in Calgary, I believe for the first time in Calgary, performing this weekend at the Laugh Shop at the Hotel Blackfoot. But not only is she just a comedian, uh, she's also, in fact, a lawyer by training, also a motivational speaker. So pretty interesting lady. Jackie Fabulous, welcome to the program. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Real good. How does one obtain a fabulous status? Is that like is that like black belt status? You know what? You look in the mirror and you say, I don't like my real name. I want to change it. <laughs> you do so and that's it. There's no rules. I couldn't pull that off. Yes, you can. You Robbie can, you, Fabulous. You can do whatever you want to do. People don't realize that. You can do whatever the hell you want to do. Well, I like the sound of that. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about America's Got Talent, semi-finalist, yes, right? Yes, sir. Yes. How was that experience for you? It was the best of my life. I have a tattoo to commemorate it. It was really? great. It was all fantastic. Every minute like of it. a tattoo of Howie's bald head? Or what uh, is it? Howie's head and Simon <laughs> and I. Uh, on the logo, AGT oh, yeah? is on my whatever arm. So, wow. yeah. I loved it. It was fantastic well you must have yeah it that's was, that's permanent it is. <laughs> you know, did they tell you that? all tattoos are and people always ask what are you gonna do when you're an old lady with all these tats i'm like i'm gonna be an old tattooed lady sure there you that's go cool now. <laughs> exactly uh let's talk a bit about your background so you're from the bronx i'm from the bx right? all day yes wow you know what's cool about the bronx like, is that i can't think of another place that starts with the like you no. can say i'm from the, the only one the Bronx, like right? It, it makes it sounds important. It matches my name. It's it is Jackie important. Fabulous from the Bronx. Yes, Cardi B is there. Jennifer Lopez. Yes. We we turn out stars. You do. You do. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. So you, I, I I can't think of another example. Of someone who's gone to become a lawyer, and then. So I'm going to do comedy instead. Oh, I know so many ex-lawyers. There's a, uh, I forgot his name. Damn it. The guy who owns the club. <laughs> Matt. Matt yes. is a real, He told me that the law that. degree he's heard is the most abandoned law degree in education. <laughs> okay. All this money and stress to get out and get your degree. And then people go, screw it. I want uh-huh. something else. I want to have another career path. But was it something that you thought, well, I got to do something, I'll pick law, or you were like, I'm really excited about No, I was very excited school. about yeah, being really? in law school. I love everything. Education is in your head, and it applies to everything we do all day. Sure. So yeah. I love having education. It's just working in the legal field. Mm-hmm. It's not law and order. You're not wearing a sexy suit. <laughs> no. You're not, you know, maybe I wanted to be a performer so bad, I thought that would be a way to entertain the jury yeah, exactly. and get a laugh, and then send that guy to jail, because they are all guilty, by the way. Is that right? All of them. Wow. <laughs> Uh, so then, how did you get into comedy? I just did it after work for fun. Yeah, I had I always had secure nine to five jobs, but I was always bored. Once yeah. five o'clock hit, so I had a lot of energy, and I would go do open mics after work for fun. 
you know, and I, I remember I took Judy Carter's uh, writing class in 14 years ago and had a showcase at the Hollywood Improv, and that was my first show. And so then this I was just in LA. You were yeah. in LA. At that all point. of my comedy career, all 14 years, started and I got nurtured and learned how to be a comic in Los Angeles, in Southern California. That's an intimidating environment. It can be. Right? It can be, but. I was a small fish. No, I was a big fish in a smallish pond in California, in Orange County, okay. for a lot of time. For and then I got my confidence up, figured out how to do the stage work, and then moved to the actual L.A. Hollywood part. And when I got there, a lot of comments were like, "Well, you're awfully confident," because I already <laughs> went through all the, sure, yeah. the, you know, the training back then. So it was. They say it's harder to learn how to be a comic in California because there's not many stages and competition. So yeah. I, my training happened in the roughest place, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, look, if you don't have confidence, you're going to get eaten alive. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm moving back to New York after 20 years in California uh, on Halloween Day. No kidding. Yeah. So back in the now I'm going to be a part of the New York comedy community hopefully yeah and there, there, yeah there's quite a scene in New York isn't there it's a big deal but yeah. I'm also a part of that community so it's a it's all pressure mm-hmm. everything performing live whether you're singing spoken word dancing comedy, comedy it's all stress but if you love it it's stress you can handle yeah yeah so how did America's Got Talent come about you know uh, somebody who I know worked for the show said send me your video send mm-hmm. me your your tape I don't know what the terminology is <laughs> and we'll see you we like you and if we like you we'll have you come in and meet with the producers so yeah. I did that and they were like you know you're good enough to go with the, at least the first round and I did it for fun I didn't really think it would go anywhere mm-hmm. and the first round I was kind of delirious I really didn't know where I was I was kind of yeah. like oh it's a big stage and I just did what I always did you know, yeah. I, I'm always on stage so it, was no, it wasn't any different for me to do a stage that big just another another set yeah it was, it was interesting so we had Taylor Williamson here oh I'll tell you and I asked him I said you know were you worried about how other comedians would perceive that ah. like is that you know like, there is the thing there's they, some comedians look down on that yeah I remember when I was in New York I was at, at the comedy cellar at the comics table and some it, it got word got out that I was doing the show mm-hmm. and some folks didn't know it was me they were like I would never I've been doing this for <laughs> so and so years I wish I would do a contest and I'm like Hey guys, I'm a part of it. Yeah. And they're like, "Oh, well, good for you. You go <laughs> ahead." So some people look at it as because it is a contest and yeah. it's a reality show. But the reason to do the show if you're a comic is you want to get your name out there, and it's the well, best yeah. way. Long even if you don't do well, you still get a chance to be in front of millions of people. So I did it to move the needle on my career and for fun. I had the time, so why not? Because really, it's it's what you do. You get on stage in front of a crowd of people. You gotta make them laugh. Exactly. Whether it's you're just, in the club, you're, it, you're on it's that the show. Same right? job. Like when I when I every round, I'm like, look, if I wasn't here, I'd be at the club two miles away anyway. Mm-hmm. So I might as well do this for ten million people. Why not? Well, I mean, I'm sure the people that go to the show are probably the same people that go to the club anyway. Right? Plenty, I have the night of uh, of the first round. Of America's Got Talent. I had a show at the Hollywood Improv, and when I left, people in, in the the bar were like, "We just saw you." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah it's the same crap." Yeah. <laughs> the same stuff. <laughs> so you also work as a motivational speaker. Yes, yes, I do. And, and it's interesting because if people have seen you on the show, yes, like. It, it seems natural for you because you, um, you 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 come from a personal place and what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your whole vibe is is just you know believe in yourself. Yeah, right? you got to. So, so it makes it, it easy. It does seem like a natural fit for you. It is. It is. And I my my focus is on women. I really want to fill up a stadium one day and just motivationally change women's lives. And it's just it's my comedy is 
self-deprecating, but in a funny way where you could be like, mm-hmm. oh, me too. I have the mm-hmm. same experience. So just translate that into speaking for the masses. It's not a hard transition. You may have to be a little cleaner, but as we can see from AGT, I can clean it up a, a smidge. Right. And I think it's important, too. <laughs> I mean, even for comedy, do you, do, is it harder for women to, to break? And it, you know, it seems like an old boys club. At yeah, time, right? it is. Um, I have, you know what? I have not had the whole problem being a girl. I've been very lucky and blessed that my bookings have been plentiful, even though I'm a female. And I kind of enjoy the only girl status because I'm I'm a bit of a diva. (laughs) I'm a Leo, kind of full of myself. But I also use it to get women on. I I also, I'm very big with the referrals. I'm always like, I know 10 women you guys can book. As soon as I'm gone, I'm going to give Matt a list, you know, (laughs) who you need to book later. So in a position of power, I think I can call it, I can get women on if I, you know, if I'm good. Then I'm like, I have friends who are good too. Let's bring them all on. So I want to be a spokesperson. I want to change the comedy game really and make women less of a, a rarity and more of a, you know, mix them in with the crew. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's great. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned this was your first time in Calgary. What about, I mean, in Canada? Have you been to Canada? Before? I did Montreal just for laughs did you? three yeah. years ago. I did Edmonton, Canada, the okay. House of Comedy or whatever it's called, I forget, but it's in Edmonton, Rick Bronson's club a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Canada is becoming a little bit of, you know, I want to do it more. I hear you guys love America's Got Talent, so yeah. I need for every club in the world. Because we, <laughs> we don't have our own, so we got to... Try to sneak our Why Canadians. Not? I don't know. AGT has so many. They have like 800 shows in 4,000 countries. We What's had some up? Canadians on that show. There was the magician. Make your own. You know, the magician, um, Darcy, Darcy Oak. Yeah, I don't know that you know, is. He was Darcy, on there. The girl know, maybe with he was the on the British show, actually. See? Oh, Simon, see? Canada needs a Canada's Got Talent. <laughs> I'm trying to do someone else, too. But yeah, we, we need a Canada's yes, Got Talent. Yes, why not? It's a country. It's huge. And it's a big country. It's a big country. It is a big country. Uh, that just for laughs, by the way, and that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, that was a big deal. It's every I saw on every comics bucket list to do JFL because it helps you get exposed to the industry. And you know, you can be a comic without ever having representation or manager or agent, but when you do festivals like that, you get on the radar of people who have the power to help you get booked more. Mm-hmm. So those things you do because I, I want to go from booking myself to have somebody helping me. Which is really the reason. That's the reason to do all of this. So you can get help. Well, I would imagine now that you're a big you know, international TV star, you've Ooh. got a whole, uh, really? a whole entourage, a whole TV. I need, I need for Chase Bank <laughs> to hear that because my account does not reflect no international star status at all. Now, how much has your life changed, though? <laughs> not really. Only booking. Only I'm booked through 2020. And um, when, I, when I travel, I wore an America's Got Talent black hoodie my last trip. That was a bit of a, you know, that was a bit of a, ah! And kids, not even growing kids are just like, they would look and point and scream and the mouth would drop. Yeah. And I'm like, this sweatshirt might not have been a good idea. Because the, the parents are like, what are you screaming for? Yeah. And they end up pointing. But grownups just, you know, they, it's a, uh, it makes traveling more fun because people are like, I think I know who you are. I'm not sure. Yeah, and I'm usually <laughs> in a good mood, so I don't really yeah, so that, that bother they'll, me. They'll see you. They're, oh, there's Jackie Fabulous. But yeah. it's, it's those other ones like, they just stare. Wait, you're somebody. They're like, ah, say, those braids. I saw them. <laughs> I don't know. You're the first black girl I've seen up close. I'm not sure if I know who you are. <laughs>
<laughs> but that's got to be different, right? Once you're on that stage, that platform. Yeah, and really, right. all it does really for me that I want is just help me work more. All I ever wanted to do was work a lot, you know, because I'm never going to go back to a corporate job. I've been banned from most companies. <laughs> <laughs> so stand-up comedy, you know, I want to be an international performer, not just L.A. or the States. I want to perform all over the world. Yeah, so. life on the road. I mean, that's a grind, isn't it? It's a grind, but I haven't been doing I've been a comedian for 14 years, but you're not a pro the whole time. Mm-hmm. I say in the last five years, it got serious. Now in the last couple of months, now people know who I am. So I just want to work and I want to be able to buy a home. I want to be able to buy all the things we all want with this, with stand-up comedy. Yeah, but where's Help. home? Right? Home is the Bronx. I'm moving yeah. back to my Are childhood you? home. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, October 31st, I'm going back because I'm, I'm always touring anyway, thank yeah. God, now. <laughs> so I can live anywhere and I still have all the dreams of TV shows and Hollywood because New York is also another mecca for entertainment. So I'm, I'm going to be cool. So you're at the point where you can uh, just call up some of the big clubs in New York and say, hey, I'm dropping in tonight. Save me twenty minutes. I'm gonna do a set. I don't. I haven't done that in New York yet. <laughs> in L. A. Because L. A. is my home when it yeah. comes to stand up. So I can pr- I can almost go up when I want. <laughs> almost. I'm not. I'm not Amy Schumer. But <laughs> right. uh, but on on the East Coast, I I probably still got a call and be like, hey, can I? Yeah. And then maybe after a while they'll be like, okay, we know who you are. You can. But I don't need that. <laughs> I I like being formally booked. You know, and be on part of it. I like being around comics. I like being a part of a lineup. I don't need to drop in unless I have a project and I have to prepare mm-hmm. for a late night set that I'm like, I would love that privilege. Otherwise, I'm good. Yeah. All right. So this weekend, um, October 3rd, that's tonight. Yes. So tonight, two shows tomorrow, two shows Saturday. Right? The owner of the that, club. There he is. I don't remember where, where where I have to be or what time anything is. So he's here Someone to make sure you. I show up. Yes. <laughs> All right. So what can people expect this weekend? It's going to be fun, I think. Uh, you know, a little bit of nudity. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. No. <laughs> I talk about what it's like to be mostly a, a woman who's not 25 and not skinny and, you know, um, part of an underrepresented group of people overall, my family, mm-hmm. and dating. I, mean, I talk about men a lot. Not derogatorily, but... You know, I do talk about men who, if you if you just grew up, I'm gonna talk about you. And women love <laughs> That's that. Fair it's it is. You know. Are you single, by the way? Uh, yeah, hundred percent. I had to think because I have <laughs> I have some strays on my phone, but yeah, you know, y'all don't matter. So, so yeah, I'm single. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, tickets, uh, more information, laughshopcalgary.com, and uh, much more. Jackie Fabulous. com. Jackie, it's been great meeting you. Thanks Thank so much for coming you. in I here today. I appreciate you guys having me. All right, there you go. Jackie Fabulous, uh, comedian, lawyer, motivational speaker, uh, uh, this weekend at The Laugh Shop. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.